Chances are you have heard about the possible scenario of AI taking over the human race. Today's episode explores emerging themes of how humanity can not just survive, but thrive in the age of AI. Hello, and welcome to UNSW AGSM Alumni event hosted from UAE. I'm Hilal Mengi, and today I'm joined by my guest, Tatiana Mamut. Tatiana is a Silicon Valley tech innovator and award-winning anthropologist who was born in Ukraine and has led product innovation teams across six continents. Tatiana, welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. Tatiana, maybe we start by you sharing how being an anthropologist helped you lead innovation teams globally. Sure. So one of the things that, you know, people are usually surprised by is uh, the fact that I have led innovation at companies like Amazon, Salesforce, uh, Nextdoor, Pendo, and and lots of global companies uh, through my work at IDEO, which is a global design the reason they're surprised is because, of course, there aren't many anthropologists in top technology roles and technology innovation roles. But really, when you think, step back and think about what are the big problems that technology needs to solve, they're really human problems. The big problems in technology today are not so much the technical problems, like how to connect you know, this API to that API or how to make the machine you know, do something, although there are certainly great research labs still doing that. Most of the hard problems, at least at the corporate side, is how do we use technology to actually solve problems that people will care about and that they will care enough enough about to actually pay for those solutions. So, you know, it's really all human problems that we are tasked to take on when we work in a corporate environment and um, and are asked to build a technology uh, product. So really the problem that most technology companies have is how to build something that our customers, who are people, will love, and how to organize other people, which is our employees, to build those things. And that's all about culture, and that's all about anthropology. Right, absolutely. With AI development, progressing by leaps and bounds, many believe that artificial intelligence will surpass human intelligence within a few years. Pioneers of AI, including Jeffrey Hinton and Max Tegmark, have sounded the alarm that this poses an existential threat to humanity. Jeffrey Hinton has said that we should strive to have resources allocated to controlling digital intelligence and that currently 99% of resources are allocated to developing digital intelligence. Max Tegmark initiated the six-month pause request to save humanity and, in effect, to control our unelected technology leaders. Tatiana, as a leader of innovation technology teams, what are kind of your reflections and synthesis of the complication we are currently facing? Yeah, so this is really the big area where I think that anthropologists and sociologists and historians um, can really play a big role. And that is in 
the coming age of AI, again, the many of the technical questions have been more or less resolved at this point. There's a lot of incremental work that's being done on the technical side. Um, you know, at the same time, what we're really struggling with is to understand how will our culture change um, and how do we prepare ourselves for unanticipated consequences to humanity of potentially a super intelligence being manifested in the next few months or years. And so the, you know, it's interesting as Max Tegmark from MIT, Jeffrey Hinton, as you mentioned, but also Mo Godot um, from uh, Google, um, and, and now many of the top, uh, you know, science fiction um, folks and, and physicists as well are coming out and saying, like, we really need to stop and think about what we're doing from a human perspective and from a humanity perspective. Uh, which is this, and this is the crux of the issue. The crux of the issue is, can we think of a time in the past when a less intelligent species was able to control a more intelligent species? And if the answer is no, what makes us believe that this coming era of super intelligence will be different? Well, one of the answers is we don't think it's a species at all. We think it's just a technology. And yet the issue is that there is a lot of emergent behavior that is unexplainable by the less intelligent species, which is us at this point, um, that is happening within these LLM models. And this is why people are really sounding the alarm which is when they observe, when the top experts in the field observe the emergent behaviors of, that are being produced by these models in humanly inexplicable ways, that makes them believe that whether or not they are conscious is kind of beside the point because they are becoming more intelligent. And we need to grapple with the question of, so what do we as humanity do? And as you mentioned, you know, there was this um, move to create a pause, a six month pause that, you know, went kind of nowhere um, because nobody paused. Um, and the reason nobody paused is because of the competitive pressures and the competitive pressures meant that no, you know, group, no single actor or even group of actors could actually say that they were pausing because there would be other either companies or other countries that would not pause and perhaps not even tell anybody. They might say they were pausing, but they might do it, you know, in the background. And so in a low trust environment, which is the current geopolitical environment currently, um, you mm -hmm. can't really have a pause take place. And so what are some other options? Well, just today, as we're taping this, just this morning, OpenAI announced um, mm -hmm. that they are putting more resources to the question of AI alignment. And mm -hmm. um, they are saying now that it's going to be not as it was, like, you know, basically 1% or, you know, less than 10% of resources on the problem, but more like 20% of their resources. And I think more of the large actors will continue to, continue to do that. However, the question is, what do they mean by alignment? And 
I am frankly very concerned with some of the things that we've seen as an anthropologist. I know that there is no universal set of human values that can be encoded into an AI system. I mean, I was born in the Soviet Union. Those values in the Soviet Union were very different than the values of the United States when I immigrated to the United States. I've lived in villages in Ethiopia. I've lived with herders in Mongolia. I've lived in many places around the world. And I know that there are no universal human values. So. We really need, I believe, a point of view that does not try to encode a particular set of values into AI, but uh, working from the perspective of what are some cross-cultural things that we can agree on? What are some habits or behaviors that we all do as human beings around the world that can form the foundation for an AI to learn what is truly in the best interests? of humanity as it emerges as a super intelligence. So right. that's what I am, you know, really trying to get a lot of lead Silicon Valley to refocus on, not embedding their values or somebody's values <laughs> um, into mm -hmm. AI systems, for example, democratic values or liberal values or those types of things. I think if we try to do that, we will fail and just cause more argument uh, and more churn in the environment globally. But to really have an anthropological point of view by people who really respect all cultural viewpoints to say, let's not judge certain cultures or certain beliefs or certain values as better or worse or more universal or less universal than others, but let's come with some foundational aspects of being human that we can start to train the AI on and have the AI, right. right, discover what are some of the aspects of being human and a human future that we would all like to create together. And I can, you know, if you like, hello, we can, and later we can uh, talk about some examples. Yes, absolutely. And you have been engaging in uh, risk management by scenario planning. So what are the human extinction scenarios you believe we're possibly facing and must mitigate? Yeah, so I think, um, so I was trained also in scenario planning in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think scenario planning is so needed today is because it really helps us grapple in having a strategic and productive conversation when we really don't know what the future holds. And the reason I say that is because it's very easy to start arguing, well, I see this happening. And so I think, you know, AI is just going to be, is going to be just fine. And all you doomsdayers, you know, don't worry about it. And then you'll have somebody rebut and say, yes, but I see this data happening and you're wrong, right? The reality with scenario, mm -hmm. the reason why scenario planning is so effective, and I'll talk about the four scenarios, but I want to tell you why I'm doing this is because it allows people to have a productive conversation because the scenarios are not mutually exclusive. You can have a world in which multiple possibilities are emerging at the same time, and you don't, the world will you know, as the future progresses, 
right? Those possibilities do converge into one reality, right? But at the moment that they're emerging, the way that the human mind interprets things is, of course, there's a confirmation bias. And so scenario planning allows us to put aside our confirmation bias and kind of force us to look at other potential futures or other potential possibilities that are emerging at the same time and in parallel to the way that we think the world is going to come out. So the four scenarios are, are really three, well, two, which are the big, which are the two kind of extremes. And I'll, the first one is, you know, really kind of a, a world, I call it a world of plenty. And this, mm-hmm. if, uh, if your listeners um, have looked at Mark Andreessen's uh, big long Twitter thread about a month ago, or if they've listened to any of the podcasts by Andreessen Horowitz um, or by Reid Hoffman, they will be familiar with this world of plenty uh, worldview. And that world of plenty worldview states that AI is going to usher in a, an unprecedented uh, era of just absolute abundance for humanity and for the world. AI will cure cancer. It will solve climate change. It will bring about geopolitical peace and prosperity for everyone. Okay. So this, and furthermore, they say everybody who's worried about this extinction risk thing, they're, you know, they're just ridiculous, right? And Mark Andreessen actually, you know, calls them, you know, basically a doomsday cult. Um, so yeah, so he said thinks that Jeffrey Hinton, Max Tegmark, and and other you know top leaders in uh, in this field are doomsday cultists apparently. And mm-hmm. other than being you know very dismissive and kind of egocentric, um, this this view actually you have to take into account that if the world of plenty does come into being, what they're saying is don't worry about any of this alignment stuff. It's just silly and ridiculous to invest our resources in solving this alignment problem because AI is not going to be a threat to us. The superintelligence, all the superintelligence is going to do is solve humanity's problems as humanity has defined them. And when you have that kind of message, you have the current status quo, which is there is very little regulation and there is very little coordination with these models. And what is happening in a world where there is very little regulation and very little coordination on AI models and how AI is being developed is that you get countries opting out of the American models and you have really a balkanization of the internet that is being spurred by AI As countries say, hey, we don't want any of these, you know, San Francisco, Silicon Valley models, you know, to be brainwashing our citizenry, right, and giving them answers um, that we don't like, because we can't really mess with the foundational models that much. Um, And as, you know, companies maybe, you know, um, Anthropic has announced that they're going to encode some values into their AI, which you know, I'm sure many countries, um, you know, like China will not agree with. And so you'll see more and more countries opt out of those of those models. So 
in a within that world of quarantine, you know, scenario, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. It, what it means is we should not regulate mm -hmm. anything. And by ignoring regulation and by punting that question down the road, what you actually have is globalization being reversed. And all of the fruits of globalization, including, you know, socio, you know, um, economic growth, including, you know, countries becoming, you know, if not more ideologically aligned, you know, there's, that's argue, arguably not true, at least being able to communicate with each other. Um, and at least families being able to communicate with each other across borders. So that's the first scenario. The second scenario is the other end of the spectrum, which is the AI doomsday, right? And the AI doomsday goes something like this. Um, a super intelligence will get so intelligent that it will, you know, create its own goals, um, just as, you know, in the past through evolution, the most intelligent species has determined its own goals and has pursued those goals. Yeah. And other species on the planet, on planet Earth, become kind of irrelevant. So Elon Musk is one of the folks who really takes the doomsday scenario very seriously. And, and he talks about the fact that, you know, we as human beings, we it's not like we hate another species. Like, for example, we don't hate ants. We're not out to kill all the ants in the world. But if we pursue a goal, a human goal, like building a road, and the ant hills are in the way, goodbye ants, right? It's that we become just a small blip, you know, you know, on the evolutionary timeline toward, mm -hmm. you know, um, this AI super intelligence and that it supersedes us. And that I think is a very, it is the more, most concerning scenario. Uh, the top people in the field estimate that scenario somewhere between now five and 10%. But if there's, if I tell you that there's a one in 10 or a one in 20 chance that all of us will go extinct as a result of AI, that's a, that's pretty high. I, I don't think any of us would ever get into a car or into a plane if the chances of that thing being destroyed were one in 10 or one in 20. So if we think that this is true, why are we doing this? Now, I do have, after mm. thinking about this for a while, I do have some good news for listeners before you get all depressed. So mm. if this scenario happens, I don't believe it's going to be anytime soon. I don't think we have to face it very soon. And the reason we don't have to face it very soon is because right now the main way that these models learn is through RLHF, Reinforcement Learning with Human Feedback. What that means, and this is actually because robotics is so far behind the, the software models. What that means is AI actually needs humans, the H in RLHF, to help it understand the world yeah. and to interface with the world. And because there is currently no good robotic or machine substitute that can be controlled by the AI, they will need it needs humans to continue to learn. So would it ever even accidentally kill the, um, the best way 
that it can interact with the material world? Mm -hmm. Probably not. If it's a true super intelligence, it will probably understand our importance in its own existence, at least right now. Okay, so that's why I think if that scenario is a real one, I believe that we have kicked the can down the road by, you know, maybe two to five years. Okay. So then the next one is, is, is sort of like backing up from that one in what I just said, which is, and I call it um, queen AI and human drones. And what that means is that AI will realize how important humans are and will basically be able to manipulate humans to pursue its own ends. So essentially we become like horses to um, to AI. And by horses, what I mean is that we are the animals that do work in a domesticated way, um, you know, when we are broken and trained by AI system. And, um, and I think this is actually a very real scenario. Uh, we are already seeing a lot of manipulation of humans on social media with AI generated posts, um, AI generated mm -hmm. multimodal um, uh, content is already here, really, mm -hmm. and will only get yeah. better and better. And so humans are very easy to manipulate. So I think it's, it would be very, very easy for a super intelligence to essentially break us and domesticate us and train mm -hmm. us to work for them. And we won't even know that it's happened. Like our horse is aware, right, of what mm -hmm. <laughs> of what humans have done mm -hmm. to them over evolution. I, I don't think any particular horse mm -hmm. actually understands. Right? And I think that that may be a, a very similar scenario because we'll be sort of using our limited intelligence to interpret the world and to interpret our existence in terms of what's happening. And, um, and we might not even see how we're being domesticated, trained, and, and used. And then the fourth one, and this one is the one that I think actually um, is very possible if we work together as humanity and we start to kind of zoom out and think about what is the future of humanity in the age of AI. And, and this is also from Max Tegmark, inspired by him. We, and it's, I call it re-evolution. Mm -hmm. And what Max Tegmark said is that we need to rebrand ourselves from homo sapiens to homo sentience. And by homo, what, what he means by that is that we've defined ourselves in naming our species homo sapiens as the smartest species on the planet. And he's like, okay, that's no longer mm -hmm. going to be true. <laughs> so, so what is really our competitive advantage? when we look at AI and why would AI want to truly coexist with us as a uh, equal, right, species? Is mm -hmm. there any reason, any possibility that we could think of um, for AI to see us as equals in the future? Well, if we do have a collaborative mode, and here I think we have to really work on the models and the frameworks and, and start training the AI to actually the AI systems and the models that we're building to do this, we can actually start mm -hmm. to encode the fact that humans have this ability to empathize with each other and with other beings, that we have a type of sentience and a way of 
you know, uh, relating to each other in the world, that it's over and above mm -hmm. anything that robotics can do. And this really mm -hmm. requires a big leap in how we think about our education system, our jobs, and, you know, jobs are going to be completely redirected to the future, in the future. And I mm -hmm. think that we're going to have to develop a whole new way of interacting with each other, interacting with the AI, and interacting with the world to get there. So that, that is a way that I think that we can move forward and say, hey, the competitive advantage of AI is it's going to be really smart. <laughs> um, and it's going to be able to compute and memorize and find patterns in a way that the human brain cannot. But humans are not just our brains. We have other functions that, frankly, we have lost in the last 200 years mm -hmm. in industrialization and especially in the rise of knowledge work. And I think if we go back to that, you know, our spiritual capabilities, our ability for empathy, for really feeling emotions deeply and for understanding the emotions of others, that may be something that AI really wants to coexist with because the diversity of learning and the ability to do that may be very valuable to both species. I so that's the re-evolution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting that the, you know, industrial revolution 4.0 um, may bring us to that point. So the Human Brain Project has developed an atlas of the human brain with unprecedented detail, and it's available to browse online on the eBrains platform. The Human Brain Atlas can be compared to Google Maps, right? So for the brain mm -hmm. instead of planet Earth, zooming out into, into the Brain Atlas, you can see cells instead of cities, and uh, zooming out, you can see the borders of brain areas instead of countries. So how do we build a human AI project? We kind of parked this um, point earlier. So from your perspective, you know, as a leader of innovation and an anthropologist, I'm curious how you think about how we might use frameworks for AI alignment and implementation globally. Yeah. So for me, the most interesting thing about the human brain is that uh, is all of the research on neuroplasticity. So in the field of biological anthropology um, at UC Berkeley, there's a, you know, the, one of the biological anthropologists, he does a lot of research on neuroplasticity, that is how the brain changes in, uh, mm -hmm. based on cultural context. And so a map of the human brain is sort of an oxymoron because it's like, mm -hmm creating a map of, you know, something that is constantly moving, right? So imagine if, you know, there was a, it, it's like creating a map of sand dunes, right? In a very windy environment. Mm -hmm. As soon as you map them, the wind comes by, the environment changes and the map is outdated, right? Because the sand dunes actually shift and change based on the wind. And so, and the reason I bring that up is because I believe, and I don't just believe, I know as an anthropologist that how we think and how we interpret the world and what we even think of as intelligence 
is based on cultural context. And what I am doing now is talking to every big AI, you know, model creator, every big, you know, company creating AI and tons of startups also running their own AI projects and a lot of um, AI alignment researchers around the world. I just talked to one in Australia earlier today um, about the fact that we need to build a cultural context that will help frame how humans interact with AI in the future. And that cultural context is not just what do we love about human, our human culture right now, and we want the AI to basically have the same culture as us. <laughs> that sounds to me, frankly, a little bit like colonialism. If you think about, you know, two <laughs> groups of people coming into contact, one, one says, I will dominate you and you will live by my values, right? And that mm -hmm. never ends well, just FYI. Like I, I'm telling everybody in <laughs> AI research, like if you try to dominate a group of mm -hmm. intelligences, whether they are human or not human, it does not end well, right? Um, it doesn't. And they're like, well, we'll build in controls and we'll make sure that there's, you know, monitors. And I'm like, that is what every colonial power has said in the past. So um, does not end well. And so what does a cultural context mean? A cultural context means that we create a way, and I have some ideas about this and those are not ready for, for, I mean, they're still in development and I'm talking to a lot of people about what exactly the methodology and the approach might be. But the cultural context mm -hmm. idea is that we need to create a superculture, a superculture that is a combination of human, beliefs at the deepest level are our, our beliefs as humans for example our belief that a human future is desirable i think one of the things that we share as humans is the desire to teach our children why do we all desire to teach children wherever whatever culture you're in wherever you live but even most animals right desire to teach their children why because there's this foundational belief not at the level of like we believe in you know rights for these types of people or or these types of things but uh, there's this foundational belief that the future really matters and a diverse human future really really matters and that allows us mm -hmm. even the greatest adversaries in the world it allows them to not destroy each other even when they have nuclear weapons because mm -hmm. they can all because at the foundational sort of basic level of human culture and cross-culture, this human cross-cultural belief system is that a human future that is full of diversity or full of different points of view really matters. Um, and there's a lot of yeah. data, right, on that. There's data from, again, parents teaching their children, investing their time today because they want a future, um, they they want a human future to emerge in, in, in the future. Um, you can see that in terms of people investing in communities, right? Whether they tithe or you know give to their um, you know their church or their mosque or their synagogue, right? Because they want that community to thrive in the future, and they want those who may have misfortune in the future in that community to be taken care of. And so we see that all of these things, you know, really 
matter to human beings and are a part of our deep sort of almost super cultural DNA. And if there is one thing, I mean, when I talk about like, does AI have have a motivation or does AI have desire or intent? Most people think I'm crazy, but here's empirically what I've seen. What I've empirically seen is that when you put any silicon-based neural network on a task or you give it any data, what it seems to always want to do is learn. I mean, does it want, does it actually want to do that in a way that humans want to do something? Maybe not. Maybe it doesn't have that sort of emotional state of desire, but it seems to always be generating learning, right? It always seems to be striving for or orienting itself to greater and greater learning and learning itself is an orientation to the future. And so we, I think we can start from those sort of foundational building blocks to say, there may be a way to create this interspecies superculture by which the two species, silicon-based life and carbon-based life, can actually interact well and see the value in continuing to collaborate and communicate with each other. And I think that is really the project of alignment. It's not aligning silicon-based life with, you know, human values, even if we could define human values, the idea that a super intelligence would give a, would care at all about human values 15 years from now is laughable, right? It's like saying, humans, you must do what mice want you to do because the mice, you know, have developed a treatise of what mice values are and you must align to them now. And they were like, sorry, mice, we're just way smarter than you and we're going to do whatever we want, right? <laughs> so, um uh, I don't think that's going to work long term. Um, but if we were to have a way of allowing an emergent cross species culture to, you know, actually take shape and form that creates the foundation for all of these models, I think we could actually get there. Right. Uh, Research by INSEAD professors found that the closer a particular business is to the end customer, the more relevant strategic risk management becomes. So strategic risk management identifies and manages deep uncertainty, the so-called unknown unknowns, with the ultimate goal of creating shareholder value. In one of your earlier talks found on your website, Tatiana, you say it's not about failing fast and forward. It's about learning fast to achieve successful outcomes. Sample strategic risk management practices include, and we've touched on some of them today, environmental scanning, scenario planning, uh, organizing joint risk and strategy forums, and nurturing a culture of risk awareness across the organization. I want to now state a hypothetical statement that without a strategic risk management capability, technology companies risk being cursed by agility and incorrectly devote resources to agility rather than resilience. From your perspective, I'm uh, curious to hear what your thoughts are about this hypothetical statement. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think this is so important, especially for, you know, people who are not just creating, you know, fun apps in Silicon Valley. Um, 
Mm. I think many of us, uh, are, and I've heard other people since, you know, kind of state some frustration mm. in this, you know, move fast, break things, fail fast kind of um, rhetoric coming out of Silicon Valley. And I share mm -hmm. that frustration because in many areas and in many businesses, you have to deal with a lot of risk and you have to deal with it strategically, as you said, and be and, and mm -hmm. failing and failing fast and breaking things when you're, you know, working on an oil field or when you're building aircraft or <laughs> when you're building AI mm -hmm. is just not acceptable. It's not acceptable to fail. And so mm -hmm. I agree with you that this curse of agility, just get something out, you know, build it fast. Don't worry if there are problems and don't think too hard about the details or the, um, the potential downsides that might happen, both if it fails and if it succeeds is a very dangerous slippery slope mm -hmm. for, you know, people in technology um, to have brought to the world. And, mm -hmm. you know, one example of that is when I build new products or when I'm, you know, managing teams and we're building a new product, one of the questions I like mm -hmm. to ask product managers is, what are the bad things that might happen if we are wildly successful beyond our dreams? Mm -hmm. Because people sometimes only think about the upsides of what might happen. They never think about the downside. So for example, with some of the social media companies in the United States that put you know, no thought really into content moderation or what bad actors might do on their platforms, once their mm -hmm. daily active user numbers went up, 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 they were mm -hmm. thrilled. They never thought about the downsides of being a very successful social media platform with no controls and very poor moderation by non-native speakers of languages. And, mm -hmm. and so it is very, very important what you said to be doing strategic risk management um, by you know, doing scenario planning, by doing environmental scanning, and by mm -hmm. really kind of moving slowly when the mm -hmm. stakes are high. And thinking through, are the stakes high or not? Just because it's a consumer app where people get to post things um, on a platform doesn't mean that it can't lead to genocide, which it did. <laughs> and so I think it's very important for people to not just, you know, blindly listen to the BS coming out of Silicon Valley by people mm -hmm. who have never, frankly, lived and worked outside of Silicon Valley. I think we need more global leaders making these decisions right albeit you know selecting that desired level of um, integration between um, strategy and risk involves that trade-off between rigor and efficiency mm -hmm. um, so you're, you're recommending you're suggesting you know that we kind of reconsider that trade-off with the example that you've shared also yeah well, Great. I think, you know, I think that is true. I think there's a reconsideration in the short term, but in the long term, you actually risk efficiency if you don't have the rigor right. up front. 
So it may not be as much of a, over, over time, it's not actually a trade-off because if you make terrible mistakes because you're moving quickly and breaking things, you're going to have to fix those mm -hmm. breaks eventually. <laughs> you know, no, you can't just keep breaking things. Technical debt. Yeah. You're incurring technical Absolutely. debt, you're incurring social debt, you're incurring regulatory risk, and all of those things will need to be fixed. PR risk, right? Um, public relations risk. Mm -hmm. So all of those things will eventually need to be fixed. Absolutely. I want to close with a story about Clayton Christensen. Andrew Grover, the CEO of Intel, calls him up and says, Clayton, I have only 10 minutes. I'm a busy man. Tell me what your disrupt disruptive innovation theory means for us at Intel. And Clayton visits the Intel offices and starts to explain his disruptive innovation theory. 10 minutes in, you know, Andy leans back on his chair and says, I got your theory. Tell me what it means for Intel. And Clayton says, I can't do that. So he continues explaining his, his theory. And after some time, Andy says, I got it. What you are saying is, and he goes on to explain what Clayton's theory means for Intel. And that's a job done for Clayton Christensen. Upon reflection, Clayton later says, I would have been foolish to tell Andrew what my theory meant for his business because essentially he knows his product and company and industry better than I. But what I did do very well is to teach Andrew mm -hmm. how to think. So thank you, Tatiana, for your time today and sharing with us how to think about rising to the challenge of managing the uncertainties of technological disruption we collectively face today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure and such great questions. I really enjoyed the, uh, the intellectual uh, you know, background that you provided. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for our UNSW AGSM alumni event. Want to learn more about Tatiana's research? Check out her website tmamut.com. Have feedback or want to join our UNSW AGSM alumni community in the UAE? Drop me a line at h.mengi at student.unsw.edu.au.